Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the things I like most about the liturgy, which week by week shapes the worship here at Christ the King, is the priority given to the reading of Holy Scripture, especially to the lesson of the Gospel. There's a kind of choreography going on. Do you notice that? We parade the Gospel book into the center of the sanctuary, holding up the Gospel high for everyone to see, listening intentionally to what is being read syllable by syllable as Scripture falls on our ears and we pray finds lodgment in our hearts. Now following that somewhat elaborate ritual does not mean, of course, that we think only the Gospels are inspired out of all of Scripture. No, the whole Bible is the Word of God. Infallible, inerrant, trustworthy, true, and all that it affirms. But it is a way of giving prominence to the gospel in the liturgy as a way of showing the preeminence of Jesus Christ, who is both the central theme of the Bible and really of all of the scriptures. He's the Lord of the scriptures. I was preaching in an Anglican church in another city not long ago, and I noticed on the pulpit there was a statement that had been written, printed out, taped there for everybody to see. I guess every preacher has to look at these words when they preach in that church. Sir, we would see Jesus. Well, of course, that's a text from the Bible. It's a good word for every preacher to remember. Like John the Baptist, here comes Jesus. Shh. Look at him. Listen to him. Don't believe in me. Believe in him. Don't follow me. Follow him. He is the Lamb of God. Sir, we would see Jesus. For a less than fully Christocentric church is already halfway to heresy. May God keep us from that. Well, Jesus is the central theme in all four of the Gospels. And yet, they present his life and his message in markedly different ways. Have you noticed that? You see this in how they tell the story of how his life on earth began. Mark, most scholars think, is the very first of the Gospels to be written down. He says nothing about Jesus' birth. No shepherds, no wise men bringing gifts. Jesus appears on the scene, an adult, active already in the ministry of healing and cleansing lepers and dispelling the demons. The key word in Mark in the Greek New Testament is euthus, which means immediately, straightway. Let's get on with it. No hanging around here. No recess. Euthus, immediately. That's Mark. Luke, well, Luke is really the Christmas gospel that we know and love so well. So much of our pageantry, our greeting cards, our carols, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, that's Luke. In Luke, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's tenderly swaddled in the manger. And we hear those key voices in Luke of Mary and Elizabeth 
It's a gospel with a feminine touch to it. John, well, that's my favorite gospel, I have to say, but John does something extraordinarily different. He pulls back the curtain of time and gives us a glimpse of eternity. Before there was time, just a glimpse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Great key verse about the incarnation. That's John. Well, today we're with Matthew for a while. How does Matthew present Jesus to us? Here at the beginning of his gospel, chapter 1. There are three things in chapter 1 I want to talk about as we see how Matthew presents the entrance of Jesus into the world. His historicity, his divinity, and his identity. They're all here. Matthew opens with, of all things, a genealogy. Jesus' family tree. It's like he's been on Ancestor.com, and you've got all of these names who belong to his family listed here in chapter 1. Now, we usually skip over those because some of them are hard to pronounce. And we kind of wonder, what does this have to do with the rest of the gospel anyway? The story really gets going in a good, juicy way in verse 18. We'll get there. But first, pause for a moment with this genealogy. Because it does say something important. It tells us that when God decided to enter into our world, our world of time and space, that he did not bypass our humanity, but he came into the very thick of it. Not merely a symbol or the purveyor of disembodied ideas, but a real person with his own DNA, footprints that made an impression on the sand as he walked along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. A family tree. Jesus had a family tree. Not just any family tree, of course, but a particular one, a Jewish one. The two big names that stand out in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 that everybody will recognize, they recognize them in Jesus' day too. Abraham, of course, and David. And if that's all that was there, we might just just go on with this. But there is something else there, too. There are four names we're not expecting. They're names of women. Four female predecessors of Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. And they're all outsiders. They're all marginal in the history of Israel. Some of them were... Not so nice. Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar had a sordid past. Bathsheba, you know her story. Adultery with David. But Ruth is the only one of the four about whom there's nothing really dirty in the Bible. I'm not saying she was sinless. The Bible just doesn't air her dirty laundry like it does those other women. Why are these women here? Well, I think because 
Matthew wants to make a statement that Jesus came for everybody, not just for the famous male leaders of Israel, Abraham and David, but also for the women, even the ones that are disreputable, that we don't like to maybe think about in such a worthy way. All outsiders, all on the margin, and all sinners for whom Jesus died. That's a good point to make at the beginning of his gospel. A gospel that near the middle he will reach out his arms and say, Come unto me, all you, all you, who are laboring and heavy laden and weighed down with sin and guilt. Come unto me, arms wide open. Because Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. So that's the first thing we want to talk about, the humanity of Jesus, his historicity, his real DNA. Now, the second point takes up really the bulk of our gospel lesson today. It's the divinity of Jesus exemplified in his virginal conception. We talk about the virgin birth. It's in our creed. We say it. We believe it. But what we really mean when we talk about the virginal birth is the virginal conception of Jesus. There's nothing in the Bible that says his birth, the birthing process as Jesus came into the world, was any different than that of anybody else. The labor pains that Mary must have had. The difficulties that could, she could have had. There's nothing to say she was exempted from that. It was a normal, ordinary human birth. But what is really amazing is the conception of Jesus. We're told in the gospel lesson today that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. We sometimes translate that engaged, but it's too weak a word. Betrothed is a legal, binding, contractual agreement between a prospective husband and a prospective wife. And according to Deuteronomy 22, if you broke this, you could actually be stoned to death. It's possible. And so when Mary and then Joseph discovered something is amiss here, they must have been shocked. We know they were because we have their reactions. Mary's is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel told her that she was to be with child. She says, how can this be? Since I know not a man. Now some of the modern translations want to make it a little nicer and say, since I don't have a husband. But it actually says, since I know not a man. How could it be? Joseph, a similar reaction when he is told about this by the angel How can this be? We haven't slept together. And what did the neighbors say? What shame. What embarrassment. The embarrassing pregnancy of Mary. And this must have been the source of all those rumors. The slander that we read about later in the gospel. And in the documents of the early church. That began to circulate. Whisperings going on in Nazareth. Jesus, the illegitimate son of Mary and a Roman soldier, somebody said. A soldier stationed in Galilee named Pantera. 
or we, in, Joe, in John's gospel, we know who this Jesus fellow is. He's Joe the carpenter's son. And that's not just a way of designating him. It's a way of casting aspersion against him. Joe the carpenter's son. But we know because we've, we've read the Bible and we believe it's the word of God and it tells us truthful things. We know that this was wrought not in any kind of nefarious, underhanded way, but as a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. The word Luke uses is overshadowed. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And that holy thing conceived in her womb was the Son of God. It's the Holy Spirit's work. It's the same, the very same idea, the very same language almost that you find at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. When God, the Holy Spirit, it says, hovered over the dark, over the deeps. And out of that, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So why is this virgin birth story so important to us? It's in the creed. We say it every week. We believe it. It's a part of our Christian faith. I think it's, it's kind of God saying, get out of the way. This is my work. You can't contribute anything to it. William Temple, a great Anglican theologian and Archbishop of Canterbury at one time, said, the only thing I can contribute to my salvation is the sin which makes it necessary in the first place. That's right. Well... I'm preaching in an Anglican church. I know not a Baptist one, so I've got to shut up pretty soon. Y'all will only put up with so much. So just bear with me. I'm almost there. The third point is the identity of Christ. And this comes out in the two names that are given here in Matthew 1. Both, I think, familiar names to us, Jesus and Emmanuel. Jesus is a combination of two ideas in Hebrew, and it comes across in Greek, too, and, and even English and Latin. God saves. Yahweh saves. That's why he came. It says that here in the end of this chapter. He came to save his people from their sins. Jesus was not a political, social reformer. Nor was he a philosopher or a giver of advice. Jesus was not Socrates with a beard. No, Jesus came to save his people from their sin. He's our Savior. And this second word, Emmanuel. I love that name, don't you? Emmanuel. I actually have a student at Beeson Divinity School from California named Emmanuel. And on the first day of class when we introduced ourselves and he told me his name, but he said, people don't call me that, they call me Manny. I said, if you have a name like Emmanuel, how do you dare let anybody call you Manny? You've got a great name, claim it. You know, people who have names ought to use their names, I think. Uh, Father Michael. Now, he has a great name. Uh, he's such a nice guy, he probably wouldn't get mad if you called him Mike. But 
Michael, Michael is so much better. Uh, it means who is like God. It means a gift of God. So if you take the L out, you reduce the meaning of his name. Emmanuel, what does it mean? Well, it means God is with us. God, the eternal, omnipotent God who made heaven and earth and everything in it, and us, God is with us. He's a relational God. He connects to us. He came among us as one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. And he came among us in the darkness, not in power and might and strength with horses and chariots and legions of soldiers, as Caesar would have done and did do. Not like that. He came among us as what Luther, Martin Luther, called a mewling, puking infant. In humility, in vulnerability, Luther said, you know, I, I wish I were God. If I were God, you know what I would do? I would call the devil in on the carpet, and I would tweak his nose. If I were God, that's how I'd deal with him. But you know, Luther says, God is amazing. He appears on earth as a helpless baby. And all of hell trembles. Emmanuel. God is with us. In the darkness we were waiting, without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running. There was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets. To a virgin came the word. From a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. We're going to sing this today. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. That's Matthew's way of telling it.